Welcome to First Importance, featuring the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you join me once again in the book of Philippians? Today we'll be in chapter 3 and verses 17 through 21. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 17 through 21. You know, Paul's life and the Christian's life is really a paradox. Two apparently contradictory statements or situations existing at the same time. Like when you hear that phrase, it was the beginning of the end. Paul's life was filled with just this paradox. And it's, it's that way of our lives. It should be of our lives too. Paul's life was defined by joy. Joy in the midst of sorrow. Think about that. In the depths of sorrow, when everything about his flesh ached, when tears streamed down his cheek, when everyone had abandoned him, filled with his sorrow, and yet there is an abiding joy, still beating, still driving, still pushing him. Paul had joy in the midst of persecution. You remember Acts chapter 16? Paul and Silas had been wrongfully beaten, abused, and imprisoned. And it is the midnight hour. They are in the innermost part of the jail. Their ankles are chained. Their hands are chained. And at midnight, they are singing praises to God. Paul, in the midst of persecution, is simultaneously uh, uh, filled with joy. He has joy in the midst of pain. Maybe I have friends in here today who are well acquainted with suffering or sorrow or pain. And you may ask, Josh, how do I have joy in the midst of that pain? Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it tells of how God had given him a thorn in the flesh and how he begged God three times to remove this pain from him. And God said, I'm not going to do it. That's the Josh translation. My strength is perfected in your weakness. And so Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Joy in the midst of suffering and pain. Whether he had a lot or a little, joy. Whether he was loved by many or hated by all, joy. And this letter that we are studying and that we've been studying for the past year is a letter that is chalk-filled with joy. And I can't help but think that today, that across this room are men and women, brothers and sisters, who if you were honest with yourself would say, I may have a smile on my face when I come here, but I don't feel joy. I want to I experience what Paul experiences what he has written down here. And so Paul teaches us throughout this book that if we abandon all things and we cling to Christ, it's then and only then that we can have 
true joy and satisfaction. If you're a believer here today, I want you to understand this. Believers, turn on your ears, listen to this. If you have repented of your sins and called upon Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you're trying to find joy and happiness in all of the other things of life, you are going to be unsatisfied your entire life. If you put your happiness in your health, my friends, I got news for you, your health fades away. You put happiness in your friendships, friendships break. Trusts are broken. You put happiness in your money, the economy goes up and down, you lose your job, all of that can be taken away. But Paul's writing this book so that believers across the world, not only those at the church at Philippi, would experience true joy. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 3, we pick up in verse 17 from where we have been studying. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, hear now the word of the Lord. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now I tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself would you pray with me please father in heaven i love you and i pray that today you preach to this very weak preacher the power of your gospel so that the lost will be saved and the saved will be drawn closer to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Perhaps you're just now joining us. This is now our 14th session in the book of Philippians. It may be hard to believe that we've been in it all year, taking breaks here and there at Easter time in various places over the summer, but now we are just now getting to our 14th session in the book of Philippians. And so the book of Philippians, our theme this year, the theme of this book is choose joy. And there's no place in the book of Philippians where it is heightened to such an amount as it is in Philippians chapter 3. It is the crescendo of our theme. Paul sets the example for us, and he commends for us to press on. If you will recall at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul says that I had all of this way of life. I had the perfect resume. I had everything that every good little Jewish boy would want. And when I found Christ, and when I gained Christ, I looked at all of that stuff, and I said, trash. Everything that I had in the plus column in life, I moved as fast as I could to the minus column in life because Jesus is so great. 
that he's not just content to know about this Jesus who stopped him in his track on that Damascus road. Paul wants to know Jesus and the, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowships of his sufferings. And he, he tells us in chapter 3 that it's like running a race. We're to strain forward. We're to press on and to aid us in this pursuit of our race in clinging to Jesus and in holding on to Jesus, to aid us in this pursuit. In this passage, in verses 17 through 21, we are given a pattern and a promise. That's the title of my sermon today. And it will also serve as our two, two main points if you're taking notes today the patterns, and the promise. Let's look firstly at the patterns in verses 17 through 19. And I want you to observe the first pattern given to us in verse 17 is a pattern to imitate. A pattern to imitate. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, notice that word example. In the Greek, it's the word tupos. It means, to, uh, we've literally transliterated it in the word type. It is a word uh, that means to leave an impression left by a sharp blow. So, in a typewriter, uh, for the, how many people in here ever typed on a typewriter? Oh, all right. There's some of you, okay. Uh, on a typewriter, when you would type, uh, that type would strike the paper and would leave an imprint on that paper. The same word is used in the Greek when Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails. And so Paul is saying here, brothers, we should imitate uh, Paul. We should imitate those who have that example, who have given that example to us. We have a pattern to imitate. Now, Christ have, has given us the ultimate pattern for life and for godliness and righteousness. A long time ago, we had those bracelets, WWJD, and we always wanted to do, we always wanted to uh, emulate in our lives, what would Jesus do? What are the thoughts that I should have? What are the actions that I should have? What are the words that I should have? And we look to Jesus, and we look to imitate Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's how we got the name Christian, Right? You know, it wasn't an uh, endearing term. Is you guys are just a bunch of Christians. You look just like Christians. You look just like Christ. We've been given a pattern to imitate. We can look to Christ, but with regards to pursuing Christ himself, Paul sets the standard. He sets a model for us. Now, Paul by no means considers himself to be perfect. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 15, nearing the end of his life, Paul would say, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul is not saying that he is perfect and that we should be perfect like he is perfect. Rather, what Paul is reminding us of is this context. Okay, so we've been away from it for a couple weeks, but remember how I just said, Paul would say, remember how I just wrote that everything that I once thought was gain, I count as loss? 
Remember how I said I press on to receive the prize? I press on toward that upward call. Remember how I said I strained forward? Paul wasn't content to to, to just be saved and to sit back, but he saw the salvation that was given to him in Jesus as a motive to pursue Jesus with every fiber of his being. And he's saying that, that is what you imitate. Can I ask you a question, friends? If you were to look at others, those who you love most around you, and you were to say, imitate me as I follow Christ, how would they imitate your following? It's kind of convicting when you read this. I know that for me, this past week, as reading it as your pastor, I should be the person you look to and you should say, I want to follow his example, but I fail so much in that area. I I look to Paul here. I look to other men in my life and I just want to pursue him with everything that I have in my life. Let me ask you a question again. Can people follow your pattern of life and be led to a passionate relationship with Jesus? Are you pursuing him? Is he more important to you than your friends? Is he more important to you than your reputation, than your family? Is he more important to you than your business? Teenagers, kids in school, is he more important to you than your popularity? Is he more important to you than what others think about you? I've got news for you. This world will hate you. Oh, there's no amens there because we know how hard it feels. We don't like to be hated. But this world will hate you. Don't be surprised when you're hated by the world. Now, that doesn't mean we should be uh, uh, arrogant and mean and brash and unkind. They shouldn't hate us for that reason. They should hate us because we stand for truth lovingly, kindly, in the way that Christ taught us to boldly. Paul says, join in. That is, as a church, you're to do it individually. But as a church, we're to gather together, read the Scripture, and do our best to imitate that pursuit, to, to jog up alongside Paul here, to catch his patterns, and to continue to run with the race with endurance, the race that Christ has put before us. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Who are your heroes that you surround yourself with? Who are those people in your life that you put into your life that you look up to and that you start to emulate, that you want to pattern yourself afterwards? Are those godly men, godly women? I got news for you. There's lots of those godly men and women in this congregation here today. There's no doubt godly women, men and women that God has placed in your life. Don't ignore them. Young people, just because of their age, don't brush them off, but look at them. Emulate them. Learn from them. Look at the pattern that has been set before us. Look to Scripture. See the pattern of godliness that is set before us. If you want to finish the race that God has set before you, if you want to cling to Christ, if you want to gain Christ and hold on to him, then brothers and sisters, there are patterns that you must imitate. Now you say, Josh, 
I've not been doing that the way that I ought to. But we're gathered here today. What better time than today? What better moment than right now for you to prayerfully ask God for forgiveness, to repent of not setting up godly examples in your life and running after them and and looking to the Scripture and following Paul's patterns. There's a pattern that we must imitate. And you and I are to do it, by the way. We're to set that example. First Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct and in love, in faith and in purity. Set the example. Uh, there is no time off from that. There is no vacation from that. People are always looking. Lost people around you, by the way, are looking at you to see how you react to things. And there's a lot of lost people who say, man, I can handle life a whole lot better without having to go on Sundays and Wednesdays if I got just what that guy has. You're to set the example in everything. And there's not a time off. Let me tell you when there's not a time off. There's not a time off in traffic. You ever get stopped in traffic? You hear me say this all the time. I... I You're going to finish my sentence because I've said this so often here. I get stopped at every red light and every train stop in between here and wherever I'm going. If you see me driving, I will let you get ahead of me, okay? You just flash your flashers. You honk your horn once or twice. You go ahead and get ahead of me because if you're behind me, you're going to get stopped at the red light as soon as it hits, right? Do you know I don't have an excuse to lose my temper whenever I'm in a hurry? Last night, we were watching the football game. Uh, something happened I didn't agree with. I, goodness gracious, my goodness, what's going on? And Bo looks up at me, and I go, oh, son, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is not right. It's just a game, son. It's just a game. Hey, there's no excuse right now. When others look over at you and your pew, can they imitate Christ by imitating you? There is a pattern that we must imitate. Secondly, there's a pattern we must avoid. There are patterns we should avoid and condemn. Paul was a passionate man. He shed many a tear. But in verses 18 through 19 is the only time in the New Testament in which we find Paul crying in the present tense. It's the only time we find him crying in the present tense, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is burdened over it. Perhaps many Philippian church members saw the soft indentation of the papyrus left by the teardrops on the letter that they read. Paul was burdened. His heart was broken over these people who had made a profession of faith, but had never had a possession of faith. Like the parable, they never sold all that they had to gain Christ. They were just merely able to pay a little bit of lip service so that they could get a little bit of fire insurance. But I want you to know, friends, today, that just like the people that Paul is speaking of, if today you've made a profession with your mouth and have no possession in your heart, you will find yourself on a very sad day with the Lord saying, depart from me. I never knew you. Because the mouth may confess it, but the heart has to believe it. 
Paul is mourning this. There are people who have professed to know Jesus, but they didn't pursue him. They never saw any significant value in him. He never affected their lifestyles. He never inhabited their life. These patterns, Paul says, these patterns that these people put up should be avoided. Whether it's preachers or teachers, family members, friends, neighbors, etc., let me warn you, don't pattern your life after them. Some of us have forgotten that we are in the race, that we're to be straining forward, that yes, Christ has claimed us as his own, but we are to be pursuing him with everything that we have. Some of us have forgotten that, and we begin to set patterns in our life or look at other things in our life and set our patterns after those that we should not. We followed wrong patterns. Now, Paul here specifically is most certainly speaking of teachers, but it applies to everything. Maybe it is the music in your life. Well, I love music. You listen, I'm, it is a wild ride to turn on my Apple Music and to listen to my music. I have the most eclectic sense of music. Whenever my playlist comes up on in our vehicle, my family hates it. They don't like it. Are we listening to classical one music and jazz the next? What are we listening to? But let me ask you, let me, let me tell you something real quick. The music that you listen to will influence you. If you're listening to music that doesn't edify you and doesn't point your eyes towards Jesus, it's going to set a pattern for you to follow that's not going to lead you closer to Christ, but it's going to lead you further away from him. Maybe it's the friends that you hang around. Uh, I was taught at a very young age that you are to, you are to make the, the Christians who follow Jesus around you, you're to make them your closest friends, and then you're to go out and love people and share the gospel with other people, but your closest friends ought to be those who love Jesus and who are serving him. I remember being ridiculed about, about that at a young age. They said, well, Jesus made his closest friends with sinners. And I said, yeah, well, I'm not Jesus. Jesus could make his closest friends with sinners, and he sanctified them. They wanted to repent of their sins and come to him. But what happens with so many people who make their closest friends and confidants with unbelievers is they don't pull them closer to Christ but the, it's the latter. They pull them away from Christ. Now, you should be friends and friendly and loving and kind toward all people. You go out and share the gospel. But here in this church, you ought to find a group of friends who's going to push you towards Jesus. Paul says, watch out for these patterns. Watch out for these people who are preaching the wrong thing. Watch out to the preachers that you're listening to, church. You need to be careful the preachers you listen to. Just because they stand behind a podium, even just because they have the name Baptist, does not make them a gospel-centered, Bible-believing preacher. There are lots of people in the world who want to tickle your ears and have made a lot of people more fit 
for hell than they were before they heard them. Be careful of those people. Now, I know right now you'd like me, you'd say, Josh, can you give me a list of names? We like, a, we like that sound bite, and we like to put that on Twitter and get a feud between you and oh, so-and-so. Listen, I don't want to name names because there's going to be one day when Josh passes away and he won't be here, but how about I give you the criteria that he gives so that you can identify them yourselves. In verse 19, Paul gives the criteria. He describes those people who you should not pattern your life after, and I want to handle this backwards. Look at the very end of verse 19. They have their minds set on earthly things. They have their minds set on earthly things. Are the preachers that you're listening to, is their heart on the things of this world, possessions, is, your, is there a heart on the things of this world, health? I heard a preacher in the last few weeks who was bragging about the size of his house, and he said, I've got the biggest house in all of the preachers of all of the United States of America. And I thought, who's bragging about that? Who's bragging about this? Who makes, who makes that the focal point? If you want to Follow a bad pattern. Follow those who are just focused, whose direction is just on the here and now, earthly, worldly things. But he says right before that, in the phrase right before that, that their delight is their disgrace. And they glory, he says, in their shame. Now here's what Paul is saying. Remember that that list that I brought up earlier in Philippians chapter 3, that resume that Paul was once so proud of. Look at all the good that I have done. Look at all of these good things. And now Paul, having gained Christ, says they're not worth anything. They, those people, still cling to their good works and to those earthly things. Look at what I've done. Look at me. Look at these things. They delight in their disgrace. Their glory is in their shame. They're not worried about the things of the gospel. They're worried about the things of the earth. They're not worried about Jesus. They're worried about themselves. Look in verse 19, the second phrase in this verse. Their deity is their desire. Their God is their belly. Now, this is not speaking literally of their belly, although that can be an indication. Those who make the things of this earth and their own desires and their wants paramount over Jesus. Those who would say, follow your heart. Follow what you desire. It's okay. There are, I, I, I don't want to call them preachers. There are men who stand in the front of audiences who claim to be churches and they say, uh, 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 God made you all of these different ways. Follow your heart. Be whatever you want to be. I don't know whether or not it's wrong or not. And I'll tell you, their God is their belly, their desires. Don't follow those people because what he says in the first of verse 19 is their destination is destruction. Their end is destruction. Why don't we follow these people? They'll make you feel good in the moment. But they're leading you toward hell. What should it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? 
Be careful of the patterns that you follow and the people that you listen to and the friendships that you have and that you endear yourself to. Are they patterns that set you towards Jesus or are they patterns that set you away from Jesus? Well, let's move to our second and final point. We've seen first the patterns and now the promise in verses 20 through 21. We have these patterns in our pursuit of gaining Christ and in putting on Christ and in possessing him. We have these pa patterns as we press on and as we strain forward. We follow these patterns of faithful men and women. And we don't follow. We avoid the patterns of unfaithful and faithless men and women. Because, why? Because of this great promise contained in verses 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Why do we recklessly pursue Christ? And by recklessly, I hope that you mean, hope that you know that I mean with no thought or consideration to our own physical well-being, we are pursuing Jesus with all that we have. Why? Because we have a citizenship. Now, this is exciting, and my history fans will love this. The Philippian uh, history is rich and is, is, is filled with Roman history. Philippi, by Paul's time, had been a Roman colony for nearly a century. It was settled by Roman veterans who had won a decisive victory in a battle right outside of Philippi's borders. While Rome was miles away, over 800 miles away, Philippi uh, uh, was distinctly Roman. It was a colony of Rome miles away from Rome. Philippi was distinctly Roman and patriotic. While other families in the area and in the surrounding cities would talk about Greek gods and Greek cultures, when they took their kids in, it, 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 when they took their kids in, in bed at night, they talk of Greek gods. And Philippian parents spoke of the Roman culture. Uh, Roman uh, Philippians spoke of Roman culture and Roman heroes and Roman architecture and Roman news and Roman leaders. They used Roman currency. They spoke Latin. That is the Roman language. They may have lived 800 miles from Rome, but they were Roman, a Roman colony in Macedonia. And so Paul says this, you're not a Roman colony in Macedonia. You're a heavenly colony in the world. Do you get me? Now, he said that about Philippi. But can I say that about First Baptist Church of West Memphis? We are a colony of heaven, placed right here in the heart of the Delta, placed right here where people need us most, where they need to hear the gospel most. We are not a, a American citizens first, although I thank God that we are Americans. We are heavenly citizens first. This world is not our home. Hey, friends, you're going to find yourself in a lot of trouble when you begin to think that this world is your home. When your citizenship is just in this world and you're seeing it just as in this world, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. The best illustration I can think of is King David. Oh, King David, all the things that we saw him do in the Old Testament, we talk about him watching the sheep. We talk about him playing the harp. We talk about him slinging that stone and slaying Goliath. We talk about his many victories. But one afternoon, he stepped up on that balcony 
And if just for one moment, if just for one moment, he forgot where his home was, had he been concentrating, had his heart been in heaven where his Lord is, the failure would not have been there. My friends, when your heart is on the things of this world, when your heart is in the citizenship of this world, don't be surprised when you fall flat on your face in this world. This world is not our home. We have this great promise. Our citizenship is not here. But not only that, we have a Savior that is returning. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says. Rome has Caesar. He's their Lord and Master. They serve him. He's their Savior. He comes to aid them when they are in trouble Rome has a Savior, and Rome has a Lord. His name in Caesar is Caesar. And you may be tempted, since this place feels so much like home, to use the phrase, when in Rome. Do as the Romans do. But my friends, I want you to know, we are not in Rome. But our hearts, if you are born again, are in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior and a Lord. Rome has their hero. He died. He's buried. He's still there to this day. But my friends, we have a Lord. We have a Savior who they buried him and rolled a stone over his tomb. But not even that or the Roman guards could keep him there. But he is alive today. He rose on the third day. He's no longer there. We have a Savior and Lord who bought salvation for us and who has promised us, I'm going to my Father, but I'm coming back to get you. We have a Savior, Lord, worth waiting on. We're waiting, right? And and while we're waiting, all of these things catch our eye. All the things of the world, doesn't it glitter? Doesn't it shine? And maybe for a moment, Our hearts are just on the the politics. If we could just have these political leaders, and my friends, we ought to do our due diligence to prayerfully pray over those who are leaders in our country. We ought to pray for them. We ought to vote. We ought to do all those things that God has given to us. But can I just remind you right now, our Savior is not here. He's gone to heaven. He's taken our heart with him. So our heart doesn't belong to us. We have a Savior that is returning. Finally, we have a Savior that is powerful. Look with me in verse 21. We're awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, here is why we press on. Here is why we strain forward. Here is why we pursue Christ. Why? 
not only is our citizenship in heaven, not only are we awaiting a Savior, but this Savior is magnificently powerful. He's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. By what kind of power, you may ask, what kind of power is he going to do this? It's by the same power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The Bible says one day that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And there are some folks that think they're going to do it begrudgingly, but let me tell you something, it won't be any problem when he stands there for them to go immediately to their knees. By that same resurrection power, by that same power that he exerts over all of creation to subject it to himself, is the same power that he's going to give us new bodies. He's going to transform these lowly, sinful bodies to be like his glorious body. Amen and hallelujah. There's coming a day when your pain won't be a problem no more. So don't I know the temptation is to complain and to be sad, and I, I'm sorry, I know that it's difficult, but don't do that. We got a citizenship in heaven, and we got a Savior who's coming back to take care of our bodies and to make them brand new. The Bible says that that day will come unannounced. There's coming a day when the Lord Jesus himself will step out and will shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet, and then the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise. And then we, those who are still awaiting, will be caught up to meet him in the air. My friends, don't set your eyes on the things of this world that fade away. But we follow these patterns we strain because we have this promise of a new life. With no sin, no sickness, no pain. And I come to you today not just as a preacher trying to sell you something, but to tell you he saved me and I'm waiting on him. And I want as many of you to be waiting on him with me. Be waiting on that promise. He saved us from our sin and there's coming a day when he'll come and bring us home to be with him and there we will be with him forever. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this episode of First Importance. You're invited to check out our other sermons on this channel and, if you're in the West Memphis area, to join us for our Sunday worship at 1045 a.m.